0: Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Ewan Strachanor, who is chair of the BMA's GP Trainee Subcommittee and in his third year of GP training. We're talking about the results of a recent BMA survey of GP trainees, which looked at their experiences of GP training and their future career intentions. We also discuss the problems with the recorded consultation assessment, which is the exam that all trainees currently need to pass in order to become a GP, and how it needs to change. And we talk about junior doctor pay and the importance of extra support for newly qualified GPs who train during the pandemic. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Dr Ewan Strachanor, who's chair of the BMA's GP Trainee Subcommittee. Ewan's a GP registrar in Liverpool in his third year of training. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Ewan.
1: So thanks for having me on.
0: How does the GP Trainee Committee, how does it relate to the GP Committee and then the Junior Doctors Committee? If people don't understand that.
1: Yeah, we are a bit of a funny committee in that we're made up of junior doctors, but we're part of GPC. So it's a bit of a, an odd one. But yeah, so we're one of the six committees that make up GPC UK. So they are obviously a bit of GPC England, Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland. There's the Sessionals GP Committee and then there's us as GP Trainees Committee. So that's how we fit into the GPC family we're one of the six committees that make up gpc uk um, and obviously our role there is to represent the future of the profession we are the trainees trainee voice and whatever is going through and whatever nation of the uk is important certainly that's the the, the role that we have with regard to gpc so and with jdc we send reps both ways because there is obviously a lot of shared interest in the fact that as GP trainees were employed in the junior doctor contract in whatever nation in Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland. So we um, have quite a lot of close working relationship with GDC on contractual issues, on a lot of education training issues. So for things like the the gold guide, which is the sort of Bible for training, postgraduate training. And we have quite a um, lot of input into that as well. So we've sort of straddled two branches of practice from the BMA. Um, And I think we, we do it quite well and we represent our members very well on both committees. So we um, will be having some elections in July and August, there's going to be some seats across the UK, I think there'll be some seats in Scotland, some seats in England, um, that'll be up for election, so please keep your eyes out for um, Elections to GP Trainees Committee, Um, any GP trainee can run, Um, so please keep your eyes peeled for elections, and we are, no experience required, please join.
0: As the chair, I mean, is there anything specific that your role involves and how do you combine that with your training?
1: Yeah, so it's been, you know, I, I won't lie, it's quite a hectic time doing ST3 training <laughs> and chairing a BME committee. Um, but yeah, so certainly from a, as chair of a committee, my main role is to lead the committee's work, lead our meetings and represent the committee in various aspects, be it with key stakeholders at the Royal College, be it with key stakeholders at HEE um, and also representing the committee at GDC and on the other GPC committees. But you're right, it does, it is a bit of a balance combining that with, with training. Um, so I train at eighty percent. So I was full time my entire postgraduate career until I I took this role on, and then with the support of the BMA, I've dropped to eighty percent to allow me to to focus on both.
0: One of the reasons um, I was really keen to get you on the podcast is um, I was watching the LMC's conference the other week, and you in your speech to the conference, you were talking about some results of a survey of GP trainees, which I found really fascinating. I mean, it's always interesting to see what people coming through the system, what they're thinking about doing with their careers, and often we. We've always had a bit of like anecdotal things. Well, no one wants to do this and everyone wants to do that now. But it's really interesting to get some actual hard figures about that. And it was quite worrying, I thought, some of those findings. I mean, the story that we sort of led on really was the one in eight tra- trainees, so 13% said they don't plan to work as a GP when they qualify. I mean, do you have any thoughts on why this is and and what might need to be happening to address it?
1: Yes, yeah, it's, it's really worrying. And so why did people start GP training and why at the end of training? Are they just not wanting to be GPS? And I think there's lots of different reasons for that. I, don't, I think it's to simply say it's that the profession is a completely unattractive role. Is, it would be the wrong outcome because I think there's a lot of factors factors in this. I think the, certainly the, the pressure that we see our, our senior colleagues under day to day will have had an impact on it. And I think we'll talk. I'm sure we'll talk about later some of the some of the workforce planning aspects of some of the other findings that came out of it regarding the, the, the um, other aspects of the survey. But I think certainly from, if you drill down some of the more nuances part of it, there's visa issues. There's a lot of trainees who will be finishing GP training and find themselves with no option but to leave general practice, either to leave the country or go back to um, a hospital role to get a visa sponsor, which just seems ridiculous. When they've just completed a, a GP training, a GP training scheme. Uh, I think the other thing we have to be, to be wary of as well is that the in, the in the findings was that there was a group of people who had completed GP training and they wanted to go back to hospital. They wanted to retrain in a different medical specialty. Um, so I think that's just two, three reasons that the, the number could be so high. But I do think that, when, as you say, when just over uh, one in eight. Of those ex a training program are not going to take up a GP training post. I think there's a lot of work and dare say it, more research that could be done to actually look at these um, these problems and address them.
0: Because one of the other findings, which which still struck me as well, um, and this is probably just very symptomatic of what it's like working in general practice at the minute, was that, that 75% of those trainees that you surveyed said that they'd experienced symptoms of burnout, depression or anxiety. And obviously, that's a real concern. And, and that might be impacting on people's future career choices, do you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think if you've especially for trainees who have, you know, been the three-year training scheme. It's a very intense training scheme. Yeah. And well, on the whole, we're moving now towards having two years in, in general practice as part of the scheme. But I think the um, the one and a half years that a lot of trainees are still spending in general practice, there's so much to learn. We're, we're training in an environment that no trainee has ever trained in, in before, being... The, the COVID pandemic situation where trees were put under immense pressure during that point, as the rest of the workforce were. But I think we're training in a, in a in an environment that's so different in a variety of ways now, both from the, the intense workload that, that the profession is under, and then we've had all of the political drive that's coming from, from the government regarding pushing face-to-face and some of the horrendous attacks that we've seen on, on general practice recently. You know, there's one practice recently i would heard that actually closed the reception that it's got you know some of the um the 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 pressure that staff are under there with abuse and the and i understand patients need to see their gp they want to see their gp and i think from a trainee's perspective if this is what it's like at the moment and this is what we're experiencing the stress or the burnout right now where do we see ourselves in five ten years and i think it's certainly a question that we need to look at addressing as to how we can safeguard the not just the profession, but safeguard the workforce for the future. Because the last thing we want is a burnt out workforce which doesn't deliver for patients. And sadly, uh, things from our survey, as you said, it's a key risk that we are currently in.
0: The other thing that you you, sir, you looked at was like um, how people wanted to work when they did qualify. And um, also, this is perhaps unsurprisingly, most people will think that you know, most trainees uh, intend to become salaried, and only 23% said they wanted to become a partner at any point in their career. Um, you know the partnership model is something that's always kind of underpinned general practice, um, and the way we deliver general practice in this country. I mean, do you think that it's something we should be worried about if uh, less than a quarter of trainees are saying they actually want to be partners?
1: I do think that, from my point of view, I, I, I don't think for GP trainees coming through. No, I don't think it's it's a worry. I think that at the moment we are in a position where. We have, for a long time, and this is a new phenomenon, we are heading to a workforce where there are less partners. Uh, but I think what's important, the partnership model does deliver really good value care for patients. And I think there's no real comparable alternative that I've certainly seen seen that would deliver that care. But I think what this has then ad- brought up and what we'll need to review is that we really need to be reviewing that model to make sure that it, we can safeguard it for the future and get GP trainees on board so that we are delivering that way of delivering care for patients. Because I think that there are inherent risks with the alternatives that are on offer. We need to look at it in a wider context. We need to actually look at how can we improve things and how can we reform what we have to improve it, to deliver better outcomes for not just GP trainees in a a workforce point of view, but to make sure that we can safeguard what we can deliver for patients. Because I do think that we need to make it a sustainable and an attractive career option whilst retaining the best aspects of the partnership model. Now that's a huge challenge and I don't have an answer to that, but I do—I think that certainly to simply come to the conclusion that we do not want the partnership model to continue would be the wrong outcome to come from this. I think that GP trainees want to be salaried in a partnership model. I doubt that GP trainees want to be working as salary mod- For non GPs or for other larger conglomerates, but I think that I think it's opened up a conversation that has to be had about the future of how we safeguard the partnership model for the future.
0: One of the other things that the survey also covered it just it really showed that, um, and I think this is something that the profession's been going this way for quite quite a while. Is that trainees coming through now? They really want to work flexibly. and most of them, uh, your survey found they want to work a maximum of six sessions a week. So can you just explain a little bit about what the survey found around the kind of hours that people want to work now?
1: So yeah, I think I think this reflects what people see day to day in in clinical practice now, that certainly no one is working nine sessions clinically. It's no longer it's no longer sustainable. Might have been even, you know, put me 20, not even 10 years ago. But that's certainly not anything that any trainee sees now. However, that's still illogically what we class as full-time, even though we all know that's an an understatement, if not, or an overstatement rather. But certainly I think that six clinicals, and that for a lot of trainees, that's actually maybe around what they will be doing as part of their general practice training, and they're keen to sustain that. I think it's important to highlight as well is that there was also a finding where that GP trainees were very keen to work two additional sessions a week. But I think it highlights the fact that flexibility in the portfolio career is now seen as the as the go-to for GP trainees. I think the 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 opportunities to enhance patient care and and, and enhance general practice for patients in different ways. There's more than ever before with. Are different roles on in PCNs in England or clusters in other parts of the UK and other and also within the ICSs. Is there's lots of different opportunities and certainly one thing that's really key um, is fellowships. They're coming up in more and more across uh, across the country and I think maybe that's where this is coming from in the survey. For example, people see themselves doing six clinical sessions and two sessions doing something else that's helping develop them as a uh, as a GP and helping them develop and be able to serve patients each better. I think we have to get away from talking about sessions, to be honest with you, because full-time nine sessions, why is that still a thing when that's not what it is? It's very clear that six sessions seems to be what trainees view now as full-time six sessions is clearly at least 40 hours work now to most GP trainees. And I think the flexibility of a portfolio career in different ways to use our skills as a GP to to enhance how we deliver care for patients is really important going forward.
0: One of the other things I just wanted to ask about the survey was there were also some quite worrying findings around bullying, sexism and racism, which is also pretty horrendous. Can you just talk through those findings a bit? Do you get a sense or have any thoughts about whether this sort of abuse is worse for GP trainees in general practice or, or in other
1: specialties? So yeah, I think it did. It did vary quite differently. The actual um, when you broke it down, the experience in hospital and general practice. Um, I saw thirty-six percent reported bullying in a general practice setting during their training. And, but what was most interesting was this was actually from patients, and I think that fits in with what I was saying earlier about you know the you know, in the last six months and what's been fostered in the in some of the media regarding general practice, and that's clearly shown through in what. GP trainees are experiencing day-to-day on the ground and in the survey. When you compare that to hospital though, where there was more people reported bullying, 44% reported bullying, this was most commonly from senior hospital colleagues which is just not inexcusable you know and it's actually one thing at least I would hope that we can draw from it is that GPTs are more supported in general practice than they are in the in hospital and I would hope that in, we can move to making sure that we spend as much time in general practice as possible um as we have been moving to with the, the two in one but you're quite right even in any setting it's completely unacceptable and certainly some of the sexism and racism Um, aspects. 34% of trainees experience racism in hospital, compared to 20% in GP. 44% experience sexism in hospital posts, compared to 29% in GP posts. So even though they're better in GP, it's still completely inexcusable at all that this is happening throughout training. And I think it's endemic of a wider problem in postgraduate training and, and in, in the NHS as, as a whole. But there's still a lot of work to be done. And as you said, it's completely inexcusable that people who are going to be the GPs of the future in the early stages of their career are being treated like this. And it's certainly something that, you know, I think trainees, trainers, trusts and, you know, the education bodies really need to be listening to and making sure that we address this and stamp it out.
0: I was going to ask you, but you've kind of touched on it about whether or not you think these problems, just you know, anecdotally, um, because obviously the survey didn't go into that, whether these problems have got worse over the last year or so since um GPs have really been getting it in the neck from certain parts of the media.
1: Yeah, I think from anecdotally, I think it felt like we were in a, a horrendous position back in the autumn and winter, where it felt like there was daily attacks from different newspapers you know, and then those horrible attacks in Manchester, physical attacks, which were completely, you know, just disgraceful. I do think that the Rebuild General Practice campaign, which is ongoing at the moment, has certainly seen some more positive media coming out. And that's really good to see that perhaps our messaging is now getting this in a slightly more positive way. But during the the early stages of the pandemic, I was in hospital, I wasn't... um, in general practice, I actually finished my first general practice post in February 2020 in a blissful world before we all knew what was going to going to going to take us all over. But certainly, when I came back into general practice, there was a mood change. It was a more, it felt much more on edge. It felt much more that there was a lot of anxiety not just amongst the the, the practice team, but amongst patients. And then that's when I think it boils over at times and some of the horrible things that we've seen that happen. And I think, you know, and this is the thing is that patients have a right to be, you know, they can't see a GP when they want to, they can't see a GP when they need them or they can't get an appointment. But I think at the end of the day, the government has not delivered on its promise to deliver 6,000 GPs punitive pension rules are forcing senior GPs out of general practice early, and that is the root cause of it. It just hasn't been enough investment and retention of GPs. I feel like we're slowly getting back to a little bit more of a a more even playing field, whereas I think certainly in the last couple of months, I feel that I've noticed that those sort of angry consultations, shall we say, or frustrated um, um, interactions have been on the decrease. Hopefully that continues
0: one of the things you mentioned earlier which i just wanted to come back to was about um the international medical graduates who are in gp training um just so people people if anyone's listening who doesn't really understand this i mean could you just explain what some of the problems are around that when they qualify and what the bma is kind of pushing for or wants to happen to sort out the situation
1: yeah so at the moment the problem the main problem will is at the end of gp training where GP, so the international medical graduates who have started their GP training have no sponsor um, to get their visa extension, basically. There's no indefinite leave to remain due to the length of the training programme. Um, and at the moment, we're hitting a bit of a barrier where trainees are, and this is one of the reasons actually that trainees are heading back to hospital, is that finding a sponsor can be very difficult. So we've been really, really pushing, not just from a trainee's perspective, but certainly from, from the, the, the the other GPC committees and pushing the Home Office to find a solution and to try and make sure that we not lose GPs that we've invested in and that we've trained. And then there, we're unable to get GPs into our workforces to deliver patient care due to red tape. It just sounds ridiculous. Um, but making sure that we can get those GP trainees into substantive posts on CCCT. It seems like a no brainer to me. It doesn't, uh, you know, I mean, and from my point of view, it's just, a you know, a red tape issue that if solved, would provide be huge benefit to practices, patients, and there's there's no losers.
0: Obviously, during the pandemic, the RCGP moved away from the clinical skills assessment because you couldn't do those face-to-face and introduced the recorded consultation assessment. Now, I've spoken to quite a few people about this over the last couple of years, but what have been some of the problems that trainees and trainers have found with the new exam?
1: Yeah, it's been a really difficult time for everyone during Mm. the, the pandemic because I think everyone had been quite used to the CSA for a long time and knew how it worked, how to prepare etc. And then suddenly a new exam's parachuted in, which no one had experience of. And certainly in the first couple of settings, it was, you know, again, a bit of uncertainty, but I've, I think the as time has went on and additional rules have come in and, you know, things are tightened up, because to be fair, a new exam's always going to have to have changes as it goes on as it bends in. Um, I think the flaws in it have become more and more apparent to everyone. I think, for example, the lack of standardisation causes quite a lot of um issues for finding for case selection for example so you know finding mandatory cases for example it could be that you've been recording for for months and you're just finding that one case, and it comes down to luck of the draw. You know, you never know. You, you you can't pick your list as a GP. You can't you can't drag patients in off the street to fit the criteria required for for the exam. So certainly, getting that case mix is difficult. And I think some of the other issues that, as time is on with this exam, that we have noticed is that um, the recording window. So, for example, less than full time trainees, the recording window is the same regardless of how long you you how many clinical sessions you do so a full-time trainee has the same amount of time to record to say a trainee who's working 60 percent now that's again not ideal and you know we've heard examples of trainees saying i'm gonna have to come in on my days off and i'm gonna have to search for trip cases and it's just you know that's a burden on trainees that they shouldn't have that burden and the csa never had that burden and certainly the rca um has it's one well, of the main flaws in it, in my opinion um but i think the rca it's the other thing and this is from personal experience as well is that you can't switch off you're all it's, it's, a, it's a four to six month long exam period at least you go to the csa you'd go to the center you'd revise you'd prepare for months you'd go get it done whereas doing the rca it feels like you're doing an exam day after day after day after day, after day. and that i think it adds to the stress and the workload and the burnout that probably influenced on the survey. But yeah, certainly it's an exam that has got its own, it's got challenges. Obviously we know why it had to, had to come in, but I think the fact that even the college have adapted it, for example, increasing from 10 to 12 minutes consultation times, has realised that it's not the same as a CSA, it's it's completely different. Um, and I think it's interesting that we'll be Moving on to a new exam, not the CSA, a new exam ongoing, and I'm sure it will have components of probably the RC and the CSA in it going forward. But I think, yeah, it's been challenging.
0: As the BMA, are you kind of involved in those discussions about what they're what they're planning on doing? Because they have alluded to the fact that they will keep some kind of real life element. And I think, you know, gone are the days probably of forcing everybody to schlep to London, really.
1: So, yeah, absolutely. I just comment on that that you've just said there about going to London. I think that's something that our committee, when we've discussed as a, a GP Trainees Committee, what we see as the future of the of the exam going forward. Certainly, our colleagues in Northern Ireland and Scotland, the, uh, going down to Euston Square to do the exam exam is no longer seen as a, as an acceptable option anymore and certainly it's good to hear that there's going to be some form of alternative to that in the in the new exam but you yeah, are right certainly we've been approached by some figures at the college for our opinion that's why our committee had a discussion about it and we'll certainly be feeding back to the college um and certainly moving forward we'll be making sure that the voices of trainees are heard and i certainly think that it's the RCA. is certainly not a good exam from my point of view. It's making sure that we discuss about making sure that it's easy to access, and any new exam addresses any differential attainment. Because we all know from previous looking at the percentages and the pass rates and of examinations, is that certain groups do do significantly worse in the in the RCA and the CSA compared to to their peers. So making sure that it's an, a fair exam that addresses differential attainment and make sure that all trainees, regardless of background, have a fair shot at passing the assessment.
0: One of the things we've touched about while we've been talking is about the pandemic and that's had a huge impact on all doctors. You've always had a very different experience than GP trainees in previous years would have had. Do you think that we need to have more support for doctors when they kind of qualify and become independent practitioners, you know, GPs, afterwards
1: particularly for this cohort yeah i think i think it's an interesting question i think it's the risk is if we don't support the the cohort of gp trainees that are coming through for example that have been affected by the the pandemic we do risk losing them we need to keep this we need to keep gp as an attractive profession and you are quite right i think there's possibly been a cohort who have maybe missed out on some of the the skills or some of the the extras, shall we say, for example, maybe learning how to do sort of joint injections or learning how to do some of the minor surgery, some of these additional things that would naturally have happened because a lot of things have been put on hold. And I certainly think that making sure that we invest in support services, like you said, you know, for example, be it, you know, in services or or resources to help deal with burnout, stress, be it keeping those other options up to keep the portfolio career alive. I certainly think that keeping the portfolio career as an option and making sure that those are accessible to gp trainees is really important because i think that as we've talked about the burnout stress and anxiety and you know i said this at the conference that if we can't even look after ourselves we won't be able to look after our patients and i think that that's really important that we focus on making sure that we make sure that the experience during the day in our day-to-day job is as positive as possible to make sure that we don't end up in a position where a GP has been cct two years and has felt like they've not been supported, it's felt like they've been thrown at the deep end with no additional support from their senior peers or from local LFCs, etc. So there's lots of different options there that are ways that we could look at making sure that new GPs are supported in the initial years of their career.
0: The Junior Doctors Committee have got this campaign going on asking for kind of quite a significant pay rise for um doctors, and um it's quite shocking actually when you look at it um, the, from so since two between two thousand and eight nine to now, take-home pay for junior doctors in England is down 22.4%, which I was really shocked about. And the BMA is calling for a 15%
1: uplift this year. So we are employed in the same terms of conditions as junior doctors. So certainly um, any change or any pay award that the DDRB would make to junior doctors would um, impact on, on G- in GP trainees, both in hospital and in, in practice. We fed into those junior doctor committee discussions. Um, and as a committee, we stood along. This is an this is England We're Discussing just to clarify, um, we um, stood alongside our JDC colleagues in regard to their their pay um, strategy and regarding the um, the DDRB. And I think it's important to note this is the final year of our um, of the pay award or the pay the four year pay deal that was agreed before the pandemic and was approved as part of the the contract referendum that took place in twenty eighteen. But yeah, know certainly, as you're quite right, the figures are, are shocking, and you know it's only fair that those doctors GP trainees. Who are junior doctors that have been on the front line of the pandemic, who have had absolutely no recognition from the government throughout the pandemic, other than claps. And it needs to be said, because that take home pay decline that you've outlined is not, it's not sustainable. And certainly the junior doctors conference recently has reaffirmed that I think it's probably went even further in, in what, the, what they want to do in the future, but uh, regarding pay. And I think, I think the BMA is going to take a, a hard line on this, to be honest with you, and it affects GPs as well. It affects all members, but I certainly think that um, highlighting that that in real terms pay cut's going to be a really important part of the junior doctor's committee's work ongoing and at the moment as I say GP trainees have been high, just as affected and supported the, the junior doctor's committee in the in the last year and it'll be something that we look at and um, reviewing and discussing ongoing but as you say it's not sustainable and I think something the government has to listen.
0: Well that's it for this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Dr Ewan Strachanor for joining me. Don't forget that we have an extensive GP training section on our website where you can find information on how to pass the RCA and AKT exams, guidance on all the aspects of workplace-based assessment, and advice on consultation skills and other key issues for trainees. I'm back next week with our news editor Nick to round up the latest news affecting general practice. Please do join us then.